We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throat, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hi all, I'm your host, Jared Zerf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. Here with me today is Eric Nevins, the host of the podcast, Halfway There. Eric, thank you for joining me. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Well, it's great to be here. I have too. I can't wait to have the conversation. I'm particularly fascinated by the title to your show. I think in our everyday conversations or in common parlance, there's this sense or perception that faith is something you arrive at, that you convert, you're born again, you find God, but your work seems to suggest that this is more of an ongoing journey. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm a big believer that um, you never really arrive at faith. Or The best way to put it is one of my early guests said to me, you will never exhaust the knowledge of an infinite God. And I think that really sums up the, <laughs> the journey, right? Where I like if God is infinite, then we're always going to be learning about him even in eternity and therefore also our relationship with him. So I think of the spiritual uh, experience, particularly the Christian experience, as an ongoing one. That, that is so funny because I, I teach a storytelling workshop on the weekends. And one of the things that I've found about the creative process or, or being an artist of itself in any kind of fashion or form is that there's no true, I would say, end to it. There's always a thing you learn to discover that you unveil or find or become better at one day and then the other day, the next day, trip, your, trip over thinking that you've improved upon. And well, it's interesting, right? How important that realization is mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm still always growing when you stop holding yourself accountable to, I have to be in a certain place, then you can really start to grow from where you are. Well, and I think part of it too becomes this idea that in order for that growth to actually happen, you have to stop judging or expecting to be at a place you're not. Exactly. That requires honesty though, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes. So hard. It's so hard to be honest about where we actually are. When did that realization come to you? When did you realize or begin to understand that you were at most halfway there, perhaps at the beginning of your journey? What was that first step like? Wow, that's such a great question. I think I think my journey is really a series of those moments where I realize, okay, I'm not really where I want to be. I think one of the periods in my life when that was kind of first present as a realization for me was right around, this would have been about 2001, mm-hmm. uh, 2002, somewhere in there. I had, um, I'd been in seminary. I wanted to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. I was at this great seminary. I mean, the people who translate the Bible into most English translations are, are at this school or some of them anyway. It was great, uh, except all, a bunch of other things in my life were happening. We're, <laughs> we're just falling apart, right? Mm-hmm. So without going into all the details, like my parents were getting divorced and my sister got married and then divorced. And then my relationship with my wife was kind of, we were having a hard time and we've been married five years and then we had our first baby. And then that was a whole new world of going, um, you know, things like 9-11 happened in there. The places you had certainty were beginning to fall apart. Yeah, completely, completely. And so I remember I ended up taking a break from school. And I remember in that season, it ended up being about three years and two kids, that I just was very aware that one, God didn't seem present. I remember praying that he wasn't like, where are you? What, what's up with this? I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I had no concept that I would later learn about the dark night of the soul or the spiritual desert. But that's kind of when I first started to realize 
there must be more to this or like where, what am I, you know, I thought I was pretty mature. I had all the knowledge Bible, right? Mm -hmm. Had I knew anything I needed to know, but the experience of it was quite different. It's amazing that the, the knowledge is not the thing that provides you with wisdom. What's well, like the classic Zen cone? The finger is not the moon. I can point to you to where the moon is, but you don't need me to show you that. You can recognize it's sometimes helpful to have wow. someone point it out to you, but you can't mistake one for the other. Right. Right. Exactly. So I know in our earlier conversations, you said you struggled with this initial idea or belief, particularly in the evangelical community, that faith or the means by which you arrive at it should follow this didactic model. There was a methodology and you just had to do it. And if you right. did it, you'd arrive there and you'd be done. Why do you think you struggled with that? What happens, and I'm not alone in this, is I found in the, particularly in the dry season, uh, I found that knowledge and and the things that I was being offered just don't actually add up, right? They don't produce what I was looking for. Like, I remember one time, so I worked I worked security at this, this firm mm -hmm. uh, and it was the best job in the world. I took it so for granted. Now I look back and I go, I had refrigerators full of soda and juice, whatever I wanted to drink. And all the time I wanted to study and read books and talk to, to people about deep theological issues. It was the best job ever. And I had no idea. I remember just having all of that. Anyway, all that knowledge just didn't actually produce the kind of things that you learn about. So there's things like the peace that passes all understanding. You'll hear Christians talk about that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Where is that in the middle of struggle? I didn't certainly experience it. And so I was asking those kinds of questions. I'm not feeling this. So what am I doing wrong? Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm not sure, you know, and it seemed to be the time, right? When that would be an appropriate thing for God to offer. I have a question. Can you please, it's, it's the one you expect. You go to your teacher when you are confused, when you are uncertain, and they give you, if not the answer, then direction. Exactly. So what I found was that uh, and I and this has only been solidified for me as I started to uh, create halfway there is I think what's happening in evangelical in the evangelical world and I love I just want to say this up front I love the church I love evangelicalism I am an evangelical through and through that's where I come from mm -hmm. although I'm starting to distance myself a little bit from the, some of the political activism that you're that we have been associated with why is that for you? I just don't agree anymore. <laughs> You know, I think uh, that's a whole nother, a whole nother topic we can come back to. But oh, sure. a, what I found is I think what we've been offering uh, people is really that knowledge piece, right? Giving people knowledge. And as long as you think that you, what spiritual maturity looks like, what the place that you're trying to get to is just a bunch of knowledge in your head about the Bible, about theology, about even tradition, then that's what you're going to offer people. I think a lot of people you're seeing right now, millennials are leaving the church in droves. Mm. Uh, all these, uh, you know, people are worrying about that. Well, I think it's because they want what they want instead is an experience of God. Mm -hmm. So I've I've become convinced there's really these stages of the journey. There's and I I put them in terms of your relationship to Jesus. So there's meeting Jesus, there's or learning Jesus, kind of learning His ways, which is where I think most churches are trying to trying to get people. They want you to learn a bunch of stuff. But then there's finding yourself in Jesus and how that becomes very personal and all your your gifts and things that he has for you. How you actually and relate. How you relate. Yeah, exactly. It becomes a lot more personal. Mm -hmm. And then there's, I think, learning to love like Jesus. I've had some people on my show who I think are just... I had a, I had a woman named Edith Leland last summer, 93 years old at the time. Mm. Um, and she just she just oozes that sort of spirit of not 
not even spirituality, but just I would say Christ-like love for everybody that she that she meets. Agape. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. She just is a is a embodiment of it, and that's the goal. Not really, you know, the all of the head knowledge that you can write <laughs> as many books as you want. I want to be that person. It, is, there's a classic phrase: if you meet the if you meet the Buddha, kill him. And the idea is, if you meet the person or the thing proclaiming to be the representation of what is good and right, then they're probably not. If they're instead just living and being it. They might be closer then. Right, right, exactly. And I think that's a difference. And I think our, our institutions, because, you know, we're influenced by all the people who come before us. I mean, a hundred years ago, fundamentalist Christians just abandoned the university. And we have a result because of that, right? We have to live with academia the way it is because of the decisions that they made. Just Why did go- that schism occur from your from your understanding at least? Well, I think there was this view of, of truth, right? Um, I probably should do some more study on that. But I, I know that they had this view that if you were teaching Darwinism, that you couldn't, we couldn't interact with you. And that's silly. In other words, there are these two ways of explaining how the world came to be and they could not coexist. Right. Within, that, within the belief system of that movement at the time. Yeah. And I think it may have gone both ways. Sure. So we care about that. Like there's certainly, uh, you know, animus in, in both directions. Mm. But I don't know, 100 years later, it just feels, <laughs> feels like that's not really... Not really the issue we need to be... Uh, what also feels, I think, perhaps like a lost opportunity, because there might have been two people... I've met people who are scientists who are also deeply religious, but there there may have been opportunities to find what bridges the gaps between those two that were lost as yeah. a result of people being on both sides unwilling to build that exactly. bridge. Exactly. That was a different time, too. Oh, sure. You know? During our last conversation, you said that Harry Potter provided you with this kind of unique insider opportunity into what you see in the faith or your journey of it and what your leadership was saying doesn't belong there. Oh, yeah. They are giving this order to not read a children's story, right? Right. Yeah, I actually read Harry Potter because uh, some of the evangelical leaders were calling out against it and saying you shouldn't read it. (laughs) Um, That's just the kind of person I am. So Mildly uh, iconoclastic. Yeah, totally. I was like, "Hey, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find out. Let's let's read it." My wife and I read it together, and we ended up reading all seven books together out loud. And by the end of the series, we were just, you know, like I would order it as soon as the pre-order was available, right? Mm-hmm. And we, the day it came out, we'd have it done within the week, that that kind of thing. But yeah, what I loved about it, what I thought was so short-sighted, is I get that they were, you know, scared about magic or something. But the reality is, the whole story is it ends up being this idea that. Uh, self-sacrificial love overcomes evil, right? I mean, that's really the the theme of of Harry Potter, the whole story, and that seems to me to be a very biblical, Christ-like. As much it seems to be rather central thematic to your faith, right? right. <laughs> so, well, in the end, actually, if we'd just be patient with it, here, and so this is what in, this is what I think is fascinating. There's a reason why that story, a story with that kind of a theme, came from England. Right, no American evangelical could write that story uh, because I think we tend to be very and God bless evangelicals. We tend to be very literal. We tend to be very unimaginative, and we have to have things uh, spelled out in order to make sure that you get the point, which is not the point of art at all, as you uh, no doubt know, right? Like, right. I think part of the conflict, at least to my understanding, is the idea that if and I don't know the right terminology for this, so forgive me, because I'm coming from the Jewish and Episcopalian side, so yeah. I don't know the. I don't perhaps know the evangelical terms, but that's why you're here. 
if humans who are not inspired by or connected to God or the divine in some way are performing what are effectively miracles, then that would, in a way, muddy people's perceptions as to what is the divine or what should or could be done from only the divine or going to, as opposed to what we can do on our own. So I guess there's that fear, at least from the surface, that people will be so enwrapped by the magic by the, if not particularly in the more puritanical, puritanical stretches of our country, the belief that this was definitely devil worship versus. Right. So I think because there, there were multiple forms of complaint. It was it reminded me honestly of satanic verses when Salman Rushdie had the fatwa issued, and he came to speak at Ithaca shortly after that was ended the fatwa, and he said, you know, the thing that got me at the end of the day. I ran to people who hated me, who hated the book, who hated what the book was about, and I asked them had they read it, and they went no. <laughs> And he said, read it, hate it for what you've read. Right. right. <laughs> you don't like the ideas, respond to the ideas. Yeah. Right. The person. You can right. hate the expression. You can, you can challenge the, and I guess this is, let me ask you, when did you reach that point that you felt you could challenge what was written in the Bible, if not the actual text and the interpretations of it? Wow. Yeah. That actually has been somewhere, something I've been wrestling with in the last, uh, I would say two or three years, probably most, because I remember, I literally spent probably 15 years getting my theological education. So it took me nine years to get a three-year degree. It was a long story. <laughs> um, but so that's a long time to get to, to be sort of indoctrinated. And so I, I spent like my theology paper at the end, they have you do this big paper writing everything that you, you believe, and then you have to defend it orally in front with two professors. Mm -hmm. That experience though, even though I kind of codified everything that I was believing, there were some things that came out of it that eventually sprouted these other these other views. So, like one thing, I'll give you an example. I had to write about you know revelation, like how do we know God, right? Mm -hmm. How do how does God reveal Himself to us? And I expected to write about the Scripture, and then we have this debate about inerrancy or infallibility and all these things. And so I was going to have to take positions on that, and I did. But what I discovered was that actually there are other ways that we know who God is. And so, um, in Christian theology, the first way that we know who God is, is Jesus. Jesus mm -hmm. is what God is like. And then there's the scriptures, and then there's um, these sort of miraculous events, we could say, or personal interactions with God. So mm -hmm. like you can think of Moses at the burning bush, or Paul in the bright light in the sky. Those the are stories we grew up with. Yeah, those are dramatic examples. But here's what I found doing my podcast. Uh, very early on, I started having people tell me stories about when God spoke to them. Hmm. And so then I had to go like, that's a thing that's very dangerous if you're a, a person who has a certain theology, because this person might just feel something, it might be them, and then they're going to lead other people astray. It's the idea of whether or not that voice could be contained to a single person, to a single mind. I've had conversations with a friend in the past who has tried to explain to me his perception of feeling, because to him, it feels like a deeply personal one-on-one -on -one conversation, to which yeah. he can ask and hear a reply. And I, that has never been my journey, but partly what I've learned over my years is that there is no one journey. I was going to read one thing from Bradbury's book, Zen and the Art of Writing, as you were talking, but there's another piece I think that speaks more to the point you're making here. So just to frame it, I saw Bradbury speak at the LA Times book fair shortly before he died, and he had this whole long speech where, having finally seen him in person, I realized two things. One, this is how he tells his stories. This man is a storyteller. But he finished his speech with the following line. He said, man is the flesh of God as he moves through the universe. So keep that in mind as I share with you this piece he writes on love and what inspires him. 
I was in love then with monsters and skeletons and circuses and carnivals and dinosaurs and at last the red planet Mars. From these primitive bricks I've built a life and a career. By my staying in love with all these amazing things, all of the good things in my existence have come about. In other words, I was not embarrassed at circuses. Some people are. Circuses are loud, vulgar, and smell in the sun. By the time many people are 14 or 15, they've been divested of their loves, their ancient and intuitive taste, one by one, until when they reach maturity, there is no fun left, no zest, no gusto, no flavor. Others have criticized, and they have criticized themselves into embarrassment. When the circus pulls in at five of a dark, cold summer morn, and the calliope sounds, they do not rise and run. They turn in their sleep, and life passes by. Wow, that's powerful. Isn't it? But as you were speaking, I, I couldn't help but think of that passage, and here he's describing what drives, what inspires him, the creative life. But that is just as easily love in faith, too. There's a, a devotion there. Well, yeah, so I was thinking about it is so easy to let life pass you by if you're not willing to engage it, right? I mean, I think mm -hmm. that's what he's saying. And I think that sometimes our Christian leaders, because they're afraid of the, of the result, or of, of kind of where things might lead. And I, honestly, I think sometimes it's power as well. You know, they're afraid people will have influence and they will lose influence. Mm -hmm. It'll really work that way, I don't think. They just, they try to stop people from from doing things that uh, that actually bring them life. And so one time, around around that time, when I was telling you about the kind of really difficult time, my parents were getting divorced and all that. Mm -hmm. My dad had started going to this uh, Lutheran church and he'd always been told that Oh, Lutherans, you can't trust them. They're not believers. They're not, they, right? <laughs> They're not us. And he's, he said to me, like, is this okay? And I said, Dad, go where you find life. If you're finding the Spirit of God, if you're finding spiritual life there, go. Like, don't hesitate. That's where you should be. You said and, to me three things so, during our last conversation. One, anyone can provide testimony. Two, information is cheap and experience is expensive. And then I think speaking to what your dad was living through or asking you here, what we are living through is what we relate to. And here he is testing not just the boundaries of the faith of the dog, but trying to see if perhaps this is the right way for him. And it's fascinating that he asked your permission for that. Yeah. Why do you think that is? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, I think probably because I had the education, you know, like I was, I was kind of, so I, I think I'd been authority in his mind. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, I'll have to ask him. He's actually upstairs. I'll, I'll ask him later on today. I'll okay. let you know. Now, I, would, I, love, I would love to hear that because I think there's this faith, particularly from my understanding of the evangelical, is so bound into witnessing a testimony. And it feels like there should be such a democratizing element to that, that anyone can experience this understanding or revelation or feeling of being with God. And right. yet there's so much work put into saying whether that was accurate or true or right. Right. Yeah, you know what fascinates me about that is, and let's just think about the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, right? Mm -hmm. The whole revolution there was about whether or not you could have access to the scriptures, right? I mean, mm -hmm. whether you could it, read it for yourself. Yeah, right. Could you read it for yourself? So Wycliffe and all these other people who translated, and I guess Luther did too, translated scripture into the language of the people so that no longer was it just if you had to learn Latin in order to be able to read scriptures it was like everybody could read it well that really is about power right because knowledge is is power in, in that context mm -hmm. interesting i wonder how much of that is true today like with with experience so you can only experience the things that that uh, some people say you can experience and if you experience other things then you have to be sort of shunned aside 
I think perhaps part of it, and perhaps part of what your dad was asking here and going to you for is that he might have intuited that he needed this, but he did not know because he did not have the context or the understanding for what exactly this journey would be like. He didn't have the words to describe what he wanted to do. He could feel it, but didn't quite have the words to say, this is what I'm trying or aiming for. My uh, screenwriting teacher, Sid Field, he loved to say confusion is the first step toward clarity. And then you have to, so here we are again in a creative writing class, but here he's more or less asking us to take a leap of faith, that you must reach a point where you do not know what is going on and believe that to be part of the journey itself, or accept that it is in order to get wherever it is you're going yeah. next. It goes back to that being honest about where you are, right? Like, let's okay, let's start here. And it's okay if we're confused because we have to keep going in order to get the clarity. There reaches a point where the folks who study, the folks who research are seen as the authorities because they spend so much time intellectualizing and talking about giving words, putting a map to the territory. And there reaches a point where folks then receive the transcription, the translation, the map, and perceive only that, or can Correct. only perceive through that. When I was traveling in Australia, and we may have spoken about this before, but there was a young fellow, devout, and he was explaining why he would climb Ayers Rock or Uluru, while our guide was more or less asking, not begging, but asking us to not. He said, look, it's dangerous, it's high, it's hot, people die on it, and the locals feel bad about that because they would rather you not. It's kind of like, for instance, were Notre Dame still in its pristine shape, yeah. for someone to say, hey, would you mind if I climb that? He said, that is the degree of invasiveness that you are, with that in mind, I'm not asking that you believe their beliefs, just that you accept they have their beliefs and that you respect that. But that said, legally, you can still climb it if you want. Just please keep that in mind. So I chose not to. And instead, I woke I walked around. And it was the strangest thing. I don't honestly consider myself that much of a person devoted to faith. But here I am walking around this gigantic monolith, which you only see a portion. So if we're talking analogies, there's only, if, if you want to see a representation of, of God on earth, here you go. There is just the little piece that you see and so much more beneath that you cannot even comprehend fully. Here I am walking around. It changes colors as the water touches it because of the mineral composition. But beyond that, I am waiting as I walk around this monolith for it to just at any moment stand up or rise and go where else it wants to. It felt so alive. So on the ride back, then we have this conversation, this young fellow and I, and he explains to me that he had learned everything he knew about his faith from his priest. But he had also said in that conversation that no one could truly know the mind of God. And I looked at him, I said, well, I'm confused then perhaps, and maybe you can clarify this for me. If no one can truly know the mind of God, but your priest claims to, who's right? See, that's interesting. And that goes back to Revelation, I think, right? So we have to decide what is God and how does God reveal himself to us? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is there is a question. I think tradition is an important element of that, but it needs to be questioned. And so that's where I think sometimes our leaders, not to criticize all leaders, there's a lot of people who really love people, but sometimes they get too wrapped up in this idea that they speak for God. And the reality is, I think that in the New Testament, it's pretty clear that the Holy Spirit speaks for God. <laughs> and uh, learning to listen to Him is probably one of our chief responsibilities as as a Christian. So uh, in a sense, learning to recognize when that voice is present. Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing. I like if you would have asked me 20 years ago that question, or if, if we would have if I would have heard myself saying what I just said, <laughs> I would be astounded, right? I was I don't know what to do with that. Right. Mm -hmm. How would I know how to listen to the Holy Spirit? But that's that's kind of been the journey I'm I'm on. I'm trying to learn how how to do it. And it's sparse and it's fits and starts. Um, so have you, have you, in your own experience, heard it? What has led you to the point where you feel that you could or that you can? 
Yeah, I have. So I have a couple stories where I think, where I'm certain that God has spoken to me. Okay. Um, and I'm learning um, to hear his voice a little bit more. It's just in the back of my mind. It's it's quieter and not as loud as, as some of the others that I've had. Oh, you want to hear a story about one the first time that this happened? Oh, absolutely. So when I was in seminary, I preached my first sermon and it was on James 4, which James is a hard book to preach anyway. I don't know why they subject us to that. <laughs> um, but that's what it was. So I was preaching James four, and it was just it did not go well. I had my my dad there because I he you know wanted to see me preach, and uh, I wanted him to. Do. I thought it'd be kind of fun, and then I just didn't know what to do. It was kind of his first one. It was kind of tough, and so I was so overcome with just kind of shame and feeling like oh I can't believe it didn't go. Like I just I was really embarrassed, and so I woke up in the middle of the night. And I was just sick. I just couldn't, mm-hmm. couldn't. I was not doing well. I was a lot of anxiety, a lot of stomach problems. So I, I get up and I'm, I'm in the restroom and uh, I'm praying and I'm going, God, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be a pastor if I can't preach? Like, how is this? <laughs> I don't understand. And I, I was just really questioning about that. What do I do if I can't? What do I do if I can't? Yeah, totally. I mean, I've invested so much time, right? By this mm-hmm. point in this idea that I was going to be a pastor. I was really distraught. And so all of a sudden I heard this voice and it was not within me. Uh, it, was, it was inside. It wasn't external. It wasn't like an audible voice, but it was inside, but it was not me. Uh, the voice said, you weren't very good at customer service at first either. <laughs> yeah, here know, you are right? thinking for divine insight inspiration. Like, well, yeah, you kind of sucked at that too at first. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I did exactly what you just did. I laughed. I laughed and I realized... Because God was right. I, I so I, at that time I was working in a bank and I was taking phone calls. I would work ten hour shifts and I and I could do at least a hundred or hundred and ten calls in a shift. And I could help people. And I I knew exactly. I was sometimes sometimes I would play like how many words does it take to come out of their mouth before I know what they uh, like mm-hmm. name this tune only with customer service because um, you can pretty much tell what people needed pretty quickly. And I was really good at it. And I knew how to help them or where to get them or whatever. So you learned to listen. I did. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, so I laughed and I spent a good while laughing, I think with God, hopefully. So that was uh, that was a moment when I went, oh, okay. All right. That's, I just need to keep going. It's almost like the lesson there is stop taking yourself so seriously or stop trying yeah. to focus on yourself. Stop thinking just about you. Exactly. It's funny how quickly humor will cut through that. I find. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so ever since then, I have found one of the ways I know that God is speaking to me is if it's funny. (laughs) Kind of of some sense of humor to it. Not always, but sometimes that's that's the way he'll he'll talk to me. I forget the origins of the phrase or perhaps even the phrasing itself, but it goes to the effect that sarcasm is anger through words that make people laugh. Wisdom is humor personified. Right. Nice. There's a truth in both ends of it, but it's a question. It's a matter of who it's being directed toward or where it's coming from. And in the latter, the, the wisdom is, oh, I don't have to carry this with me. I can right. put it down or put it aside because that's not all that there is to me. It's fascinating. So you start in customer service, and do you think there's any true surprise that what you do now is sit down and talk with people about their stories, hear their witnesses, you know, hear what they've witnessed, their testimonies, and perhaps sometimes help them laugh at the things that they've lived through in their life? Yeah, you know, in retrospect, no. <laughs> <laughs> at the time, it was pretty hard. But it is one of the graces that I found going, okay, I did spend like 10 years on the phones, learning how to listen, learning how to ask a question, being able to type while I'm listening, uh, trying to find something. And I do that when I'm often 
during my during my shows because I'll look up a verse or look up something, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't have that skill if it weren't for that that period of time. And so, yeah, I can see some. Actually, feels like redemption in that a little bit. Here is the other Bradbury piece that I think fits with our earlier conversation as well, and will probably be a beautifully simple transition into talking about your podcast. But I've heard farmers tell about the very first wheat crop on their first farm after moving from another state. And if it wasn't Robert Frost talking, it was his cousin, five times removed. I've heard locomotive engineers talk about America and the tones of Thomas Wolfe, who rode our country with his style as they ride in their steel. I've heard mothers tell of the long night with their firstborn, when they were afraid that they and their baby might die. And I have heard my grandmother speak of her first ball when she was 17, and they were all when their souls grew warm. Poets. And it sounds like to me what you do on the show is perhaps warm them up a little. Yeah, I hope so. I think it's interesting. The best compliment that I can get during an interview, there's two. One is that's a great question. I love that. (laughs) And the second one is wow, I had never made that connection. You're listening to a story, or, you know, when it's obvious to me as the interviewer, the themes that are coming out of their story that they're that they're telling. And then I can bring that out and share it with the audience and share it with sometimes with them. And they go, oh, yeah. No, I think to your point, that's the value of having someone else to listen because it is so easy sometimes. It's funny. We just, in the last interview I did earlier this week, talked about Foster Wallace's This Is Water. It's so easy to live in that, the world you're in, and to not perceive it truly or at all. And then finally sit down and talk with someone else and them to go, oh, here is what I see of your life. Does that feel or seem true to you? If nothing else, it's the thing I hope for the guest that we take away from the the audience takes away, a guest takes away each time, because I feel like there's there's an opportunity to grow, if that makes sense. So yeah. if we can provide it or encourage it somehow, that's my father's a gardener too. So there's that, I don't know, thing I've picked up from him, I guess, of wanting to nurture and nourish somehow. Yeah. Interesting. That idea of a kind of, um, like, well, it's, it's planting seeds, but letting an idea grow and, and kind of nurturing it as it goes. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Just this, this sense that you can perceive of a thing, you can see something for the first time, but it can take a while for that idea to grow, to take root, to dig down, to, well, I, I suppose to use a, a religious phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Right. That, but that idea that I can see this truth about you, but I don't know if it's something you will take to now or later, but I can see it as something true about you. And I know as a stubborn individual myself, <laughs> you'll appreciate this. I went to see my friend Nikolai, who had his wedding recently, and we hadn't seen each other in probably about a decade and change. And I told him where my story, the book I'm writing, has been going. And I had, over the years, added a lot more of the kind of magical elements, fairy tale or fable to it that I'd been fighting this whole time. And he looks at me, and he looks at his spouse, and he goes, thank you, 10 years, I've been telling you to do this, and now you finally choose to listen. Right, because he could tell that that's where where you wanted to go. But there's that, I think with faith too, there's that kind of thing where sometimes we wonder and and look back and go, how many times did we not listen? How many times did we choose not to hear? Right. Right. And then, you know, for me, the question is why? Like, why do I not want to listen to, you know, where we're trying to go, you know? And I think... I've had to learn to listen to my heart. So it's not just the Holy Spirit, or maybe it is the Holy Spirit in in me, but listening to kind of how he made me to go to the to the places that that I, I want to go, you know? What um, are some of your favorite experiences with the show or with the retreats you run? And what have been some of the hardest? Oh, yeah. Um, so my favorite experiences, I love... First of all, I just love meeting all the people and hearing the stories. I consider that an incredible honor. 
you know, I told you about Edith Leland, mm-hmm. who's the three-year-old lady. People like that. Um, I love the chance to see. So I give you the kind of four stages of the journey that I think I get to see every single one of those stages. And every single person has something to add, something that I can learn from, mm. the audience can learn from, whether regardless of where they are. And so I think that's really fascinating. That's kind of changed the way that I think about, about people. Because early on, I was really wanting people who are sort of in the later stages, right? Because that's, I think, a tremendous need. But as I've encountered people, I've learned, oh, no, we're going to learn something here regardless. I, was there that sense of perception that at least those folks would be able to look back and put some words or sense to it? Totally. Yeah, I'm sure. And it's interesting. It's an interesting little snapshot, right, of mm-hmm. where, they're, where they are now. And uh, I haven't had anybody come back later, a couple of years later, and, and tell me, hey, give me any observations on where they were at that time. Um, but maybe that'll happen. That'd be cool. What have you learned from the people you've been helping or been trying to teach? Oh, yeah. Uh, so one thing I've learned is that God speaks to us. That was a huge one early on um, as I started to go, oh, this is, I'm not, it's not just one or two stories. It's a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. And so I had to take that a lot more seriously. Um, I've learned that the journey, it doesn't really matter where you are on the journey. Um, as long as you're on it, you have to, like we said, be honest about where you are and then do whatever it takes to feed yourself in that season. So um, if you're in that learning Jesus stage, that's great. Dig into theology, dig into the the scriptures and learn them as best you can. It's a great foundation. But when I talk more about experiences or I talk about, you know, finding yourself in Christ and, and you think I'm being fuzzy wuzzy, right? Mm-hmm. Don't denigrate that because actually it's a later stage in, in the journey that that uh, you don't know about yet. So I have a lot more compassion for those people who, who uh, particularly the ones that think they already know everything they need to know. <laughs> that, that makes me crazy. It, it, it always kind of made me crazy because mm-hmm. uh, I've never, I was never one of those people, but uh, I tried sometimes to be that way. I'm partly laughing at myself when I was, I think, 16. I was yeah. fighting whatever essay I had to do at the time. And I remember my brother's autistic, so I went to a lot of shrinks and whatnot to help the family deal with that. And one asked you, why are you so resistant to this? And I said, because that's not my style. And he looked at me and said, you're 16. You don't have a style yet, <laughs> which is not accurate either. But by the same token, I think what he was trying to say is, you're not done. Right. Don't, right. Call your, don't say that you are. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's true. I think some of it's youth. You know, there's there's certainly... we. It's easier when you're young to be assured of everything than it is when you're a little bit older and you figure out how much more difficult the world is. It's so funny you say that when I was traveling, finally had a chance in my early 20s to be mostly on my own. I ended up picking a copy of uh, Rumi's poetry and a great deal of his work is on the annihilation of things that aren't you and just the emptying out in the this in Zen Cohen's, the idea of emptying out the cup to allow for things that are more meaningful and truthful to be put in there instead. And it took a lot of that work, I would say, I guess, if you're to, in your parlance, the long night of the des- in the desert, of just letting the things that I didn't need be left aside and or didn't want anymore or grew out of. And I guess I guess that's why the idea of the seed works, because you start off as this one shape, but you cast aside so much of it to retain what is fundamental or there th- throughout the entire time. And it's not a matter of, I don't know, I'll, let me ask you, since you're in the evangelical community, when you hear the phrase born again, what does that mean to you? Well, that's such a great question. I know that that was sort of the preferred phrase maybe 40 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what it means is this idea that uh, Jesus will give us new life. 
So resurrection is a huge point of faith, right? So mm-hmm. not only that he was risen from the dead and that that gives us hope, not just beyond this life, right? But also for what God's doing in the world. I think it's interesting. I think sometimes one one thing that's happened in the evangelical world in the last, I don't know, maybe maybe I can't put a good time frame on it, let's say 50 to 75 years, is that is the emphasis on that word, the word was chosen because they were trying to communicate something about eternal destiny, right? Mm-hmm. So about what happens when you die. And so then the message of the gospel became something very uh, sort of turn or burn, right? Like either you're going to go to hell or you're going to go to heaven. Binary, then, yeah. Binary, yes, that's a good word. That I think is what, like, so when I hear born again, I kind of think of, like, there's all that wrapped up into it. Um, but I really think that what it means is Jesus is giving us new life. You know, there's a, there's a passage that I go back to a lot in um, Revelation 21, mm-hmm. where Jesus says, and this is a vision, admittedly. And in that scene, obviously it's a vision of John. And so, and it's apocalyptic literature. So we have to take that all into account. Mm-hmm. But Jesus says to him, behold, I'm making all things new. Right, this idea that the invitation of being born again is that he can make your life new as well. And I think everybody, whether we, you know, want to admit it or not, we have this sense that uh, there are some things I would like to be new about who I am. And if nothing else, we can say the world needs to be new. I mean, I, I live in—I haven't shared this with you, Jared, but so I live in Colorado. Mm-hmm. That school shooting that happened this week—that's our school. <sighs> My kids go there. I had three kids in that school. Now, we were very fortunate to have early uh, confirmation that all the kids were okay. But my oldest son was not far from where some of that action went down. And that's horrifying, right? It's just absolutely horrifying. So I don't think you can see those kinds of things and go, uh, the world doesn't need to be changed. Born again, I mean, uh, my prayer for the shooters, um, and it's really rare for them to end up alive, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But I pray for them that they would be born again, that they would find a new life in Christ as well, as well as all the rest of us that are just kind of hurting, whether we we were hurt or or not. What I hear then is this idea that some of us change, some of us should change. There should be room for that change, but who we are, there's still something of who we were, who we are that has to remain. There's to be something there that recognizes the change in us, if that makes sense. For me, at least from what I've heard from other people, the idea that you're casting yourself off entirely is terrifying to them, but this idea that I will perhaps, okay, I'll share it to you as a story I've heard because it's from an entirely different culture, but a similar perception, although the direction might be in the other way. So you'll tell me. My friend, she was studying with these weavers down in South America, and she asked one day why they left one little black thread in their creations. And they explained to her that when they make something, they put a part of themselves of their soul into it, and the black thread is there so that they can pull it back again and not lose themselves when they're done. And I almost wonder if, to a certain extent, the rebirth of the born-again experience is like that, that you are, in a sense, exploring, as your father did, new ways of being or new or other ways of seeing who you are and living the self that you are. But you don't lose that potential. The seed itself doesn't cease to have been a seed. or from where, You don't lose where you came from. You don't lose who you were. But how you feel about that, how you act from there, who you change from there, how you choose to be from there, I suppose, is the way to phrase that. Yeah, I think that's true. So in spiritual formation, we have this um, language called the false self. Have you ever heard that? No, I haven't. Not in that context. Yeah. So a lot of like the ancient saints would call it that, the false self. But it's this idea that you have this persona that you would put on, Mm -hmm. right? 
and we all do this. We all put on kind of the who we think we are in the morning, which may be different from who we present to ourselves when we're alone. Mm-hmm. So the idea of spiritual formation and spiritual growth and change is that the false self slowly gets, or sometimes quickly, gets taken away, right? So those masks come come off through various various things. There's different things that God can use to do that. But that's I struggle with that because I wonder, to your point, what of me is left, right? Mm. But here's the thing, and this is where my trust and faith comes in. If I trust God to have made me and to bring and that he's bringing out he's taking away the things that I built up as the as an identity to become uh to make myself feel important or relevant or whatever it is and he's revealing instead the identity that he has for me mm-hmm. how much more powerful is that going to be I have to I have to find the right poem but it's it's a theme Rumi touches on repeatedly so again he has there's the fear if I'm annihil- if I annihilate myself the self what else what is left and he says mm-hmm. why does the drop of water fear that it will lose itself in the ocean the ocean is both the drop of water and the body that contains it yeah right so if we're a, re- a reflection of who God is then how well, how do we why do we f- afraid of that. I, I guess this is perhaps where a, a, one of the central elements of struggle comes in, because there's that, there's the fear. There's the fear and the expectation, and it's so fascinating. The more and more I have these conversations, how often those are central to them in terms of what holds us back. This belief yeah. or these ideas we have of what we'll be, even if we don't have the, you know, this knowledge we think we have that we act upon without knowing in truth what will happen, because we can't in truth know for certain what will happen. Right. But we, to to some extent, have to feel like we're acting upon certainty. It is. It's like trying to keep yourself separate as a drop of water in the body of the ocean. How do you hold on to something that's ever-changing, right. but always just, there? Yeah. One of the things I like about this conversation, if you'll humor me, is that we're talking about how much of a struggle it is to express the ideas around faith, but also just to try to figure out what it means on a day-to-day. Let's go back to your podcast here. Is there any, are there any commonalities that emerge in your conversations? Are there any kind of thematics or conversations you find yourself having again? Or is each time you sit down with someone almost entirely new? That's a great question. I think one, there are always things that are similar and there are always things that are different. So, you know, very often, particularly lately, I've had people who just grew up in the church. And so their story is often very different. They They will... Um, or they're similar, but they're different than, than they're not dramatic ones is what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've had several people just this week tell me, I never know, knew a time when I didn't have faith. Mm. They grew up either as pastor's kids or just in the church always going. And so they just didn't know, like that just is part of who they are and always has been. But then I've also talked to people who, like I talked to one guy and I, I just love his story. Well, he was he, a bank robber. He, he was, was a... one of the big, <laughs> biggest bank robbers in, in the uh, history of the United States, actually, and then at least at that time, and then he was a bouncer at a, like a like a biker bar mm-hmm. uh, after he got out of jail. And this guy, Bible student, shared the gospel with him, and he said, "John, what do you want to do?" And John said, "I want to go home and do cocaine and read the Bible." And his friend <laughs> said, "That is just fine." Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that's that's incredible. So he gives, he, so his friend gave him a Bible and he just, he said, okay, there you go. He goes, aren't you going to judge me? He said, nope, that's up to, that's up to the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's the Bible. Have fun. He ended up spending the entire night reading the new Testament and doing an eight ball of cocaine, which I don't have any real reference for how much an eight ball of cocaine is. It just sounds like a lot of cocaine. Right? Also, it's fascinating. I don't by any means want to do an eight ball of cocaine, but I want to know what the experience of reading the Bible is like on it. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 
I guess he read fast. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I, I want to know what he, I, I want to hear what he sees in that moment that others might not have because of, I don't know, you'd probably enjoy reading or if not reading, listening to Oliver Sacks, the neuroscientist. He was well known for inducing various states of mind when he wished to perceive things. And he said at one point, as his body and mind were beginning to degenerate, he wanted to see the color indigo. And wanting to see the thing should not therefore make it happen. But he said, okay, I'm going to take a bunch of these various, I believe it's a combination of barbiturates and other chemicals. And in his very English erudite fashion, he's very particular. He's an incredible storyteller. I enjoy him partly because I never had a chance to hear my grandfather tell his stories and he was a phenomenal. So I always, I suppose, look for that kind of person or character. I listened to him one day as he described taking these various medicals, supplements, we'll call them, <laughs> and sitting down and saying, I wish to see indigo. And he had described that he'd only seen it one other time before in the spider that just happened to walk by. And it, because it's not a color that occurs often naturally, <laughs> as he described it. And sure yeah. enough, there as he started to slip into the state with this massive blob in front of his eyes of indigo. And he said, I'm not a religious person, but if I could envision something divine, that would be it. That I could ask to see indigo and suddenly it is there. Wow. <laughs> you know, who knows? There are the, the sun dancers in Native American culture, they dig hooks into their bodies and hang for hours to induce a state of being that is not our no part of our normal existence or our day-to-day -to, -day to commune. So maybe that was yeah. his time. I don't, I, I, <laughs> I don't know what to do with all that, but yeah, it was, it was a fascinating story. And it, here's what I took from it was, okay, God can do anything, you know, basically convert and call this guy to himself as a result of this, this evening. <laughs> That's like drunk dialing your ex. Totally. <laughs> wow. What? I mean, that's unbelievable. So I just, I've heard stories like that. Some of them are really dramatic. Some of them are less dramatic. Sometimes there, I mean, there's other stories. Obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of stories oh, sure. in 40 episodes or so, but it just astounds me how different a lot of all of our experiences are. And I, I love sharing that because I think we don't get that on a typical Sunday morning, but also how alike they are because they're all, even though God is, able to speak to each individual in the way that they need, he is still the same. And so he is still, um, there's a thread of, of him and his love and his, his care for, for people that, that comes out uh, over and over and over again. Now, you deliberately chose to have your show on a Sunday morning. Uh, well, it comes out on Monday. Okay. But yeah. you recorded on Sunday. So there's still that ritual or tradition of effectively going to church to sit down with the pastor at some point, and if not have a sermon, then a conversation. Yeah, sure. Do you feel like that context, that kind of cultural expectation helps them sit into, if not a confessional role, then a, then a position of not feeling threatened by authority? Just to have this? Yeah. You know what's interesting? So I don't know if it's like that or not. It might, it might feel that way. Um, I guess I should ask some people. But I think what I have noticed is a lot of people, are, a lot of people I interview are people who would never be given the platform on a Sunday morning. Hmm. And they would never have the chance to get up. And some of them would never want to. They would never want to get up and tell their story, but they're willing to sit down with me and tell me the story around the table. Or nowadays I do it mostly on the internet mm -hmm. and we'll talk like this and we'll just have that discussion and go back and forth, back and forth. And then I can put them in front of thousands of people, right? Which if they was a crowd of thousands of people, they wouldn't want to, they'd be terrified. And so would I, that's just how that, that goes. We started a tradition quite a few years ago now, I guess at our temple four times a year yard site, the ceremony of remembrance for those who've passed. And there's a, there's a great deal of ritual. It's a, a lot of it is just to make sure people come to feel and have a place to grieve and be comforted by others there. 
But the tradition we started in the past few years involves having people come up and, I suppose, share their testimony, their witness, their experience of someone who has passed. And it's fascinating because you would think initially these would largely be loving testimonies, and they're not always. There are family members of those who have taken their own lives or of those who were violent or bitter or angry or confused. But I find it incredibly powerful because it gives depth and texture and reality to loss. And it, it feels like your show in that same way gives people a sense that there is more to the journey or the, the struggle toward faith. Or I don't want to use toward faith because it's not a destination, is it? Right. No, it's, it's really the experience of faith. Honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. What it's like to be a Christian in today's world. And that if nothing else, they should take away the feeling that this is something ongoing, that it is, in Thich Nhat Hanh's words, a struggle. There's a challenge to taking that mindfulness, that prayerfulness into your every day. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's where I am. So I'm trying to say that to people, that the journey is far wider, far longer, and far deeper than you've been told. And that's really... So even when we talk about the dark night of the soul, when we talk about those seasons, I always ask about the conversion experience, and I always ask about a dark night of the soul, because whether I use those words or not, um, because I want to know, I want to normalize that for people who are listening. I want them to hear that this happens, that God uh, is there, even though He doesn't seem like it, and that eventually He does uh, bring people out of that season in one way or another. What is the one thing you've always wanted to be asked that no one ever has? That is a great question. Dude, you told me you were going to ask me that. I forgot. <laughs> I am, you're laughing because you remember that, but also because there's truly no way to prepare for it, is there? There isn't. There isn't. I think I just want people to ask me like, who I really am and if it's okay to be that person. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Beyond, it's beyond acceptance. It's something that goes, well, it goes to agape, the embrace of not just the individual you encounter, but what is, I think, as you would say, the divine within them. Yeah. I, I still want to badger my friend into being on your show because when he does his documentary work, that is what inspires him to do it. He looks for what is divine in the people. He interviews and shares that in the work he does. And that that realization came out of the conversation. And it feels like a lot of your work follows that similar, a similar same path where you help people realize the presence of the divine in their everyday. Yeah, I really hope so. I hope that I've helped people see that God is always with them and maybe take note of that a little bit. So this is a little bit reflective, I guess, but my favorite moments in life are the ones where I feel it's connected is, is one way to put it, but, but also just like I feel the connection of the world. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like I, when I feel like I can see that the ways that God works in one person's life are not always the, the ways that he works in other people's lives, but there's a connection and there's the sort of thread and the beauty of the, the tulips that are coming up right now and the lilac and all of that. And to be able to kind of understand that and kind of soak that in, even at the same time as going through such a terrible tragedy, like our community did this week. Mm-hmm. If we're when those, I mean, that's that does a significant blow, but when you can kind of soak all that in together and see the connectedness of it, that like that's where I really like to be. So, I guess I don't know if I could put that as a question to kind of answer, <laughs> thing, but, but it's a thing you wish people would ask you about more. I do, I wish it's a thing that I could share more. I don't think it's a little woo woo, I mean, it's a little weird. I don't, and I find it fascinating that interview. And I have so many friends, particularly among my later years, who are if not able to hear the voice of God and feel that direct connectedness to him, I don't hear or feel that, but I am grateful to exist in a world where I can stand out in the rain and have it wash things away. 
and feel yeah. that it washes things away. And that is that experience of just being able to go, this can happen. This will and continues to happen, that I can go outside and watch a rainstorm just pass and know that this too shall pass. And I guess it goes back to why I always think of Bradbury's phrase that man is the flesh of God as he moves through the universe. And I, I'm not going to use God as the only way to define your experience of that. We're just using these as, and I think it's important for people listening to, to hear that. I'm using these terms as placeholders for your experience because I'm using the words as I would experience. I'm using the map to represent the territory here. But you have to, I think as your dad did, you have to be willing to, to not know, to not understand at first. And strangely, the way by which I learned to do that came through my own work, my own writing. Because I was forced to, I had to every day encounter my own limitations or the ones I imposed on what I was trying to give life to and create. And to realize that it would never survive if I continued to do that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's how you're made, right? You have to, you write it. Yeah. I remember my coach asked me one day, she said, well, why, why this story? Why do you have to tell this story? It's funny because working, helping people tell their stories, it's always this thing I ask them, but it's not something I usually want to ask myself. And I said, it's strange. There's so much awful that happens in the story. It's not because I want the awful to happen. It just happens because of who they are and what they want and how they go about getting it. But there's this belief, this hope they have that no matter how many times they try and fail, that eventually they'll get it right. And yeah, is that in many ways reflective of my own experience in life? Probably. But hope, ultimately, despite all of that hope at the end of it, I want people to take away from the story. And that's why I have to tell it and have to write it. And I think that's why you feel the need to sit down and ask these people who would not feel comfortable right in church to share their lives to do precisely that. Yeah, absolutely. I want people who would otherwise not hear these stories to hear them and to hear that they're not alone. Loneliness is an epidemic and we've never been more connected and we've never been further away. You no, know, it is. It's so strange how... It's, it is easier now to reach out to people, but the desire to do so on a deep and meaningful level, or to be able to sustain that desire, feels much harder than it used to be. Yeah, it does. Let's be honest. Back in the day, you didn't have that many friends, right? True. Like, you had a few friends, and now you've got a thousand Facebook friends. <laughs> but they're not really friends. A lot of them are acquaintances. Well, and that's, I guess, partly where the words themselves fail us. We use the language we have grown up with to define what doesn't have the right to apply to these things that we haven't truly had before. We're outside of the language and the knowledge and the insights we have. We're out, the knowledge isn't providing us with the means to navigate. And in some ways, it can't. We have to, we have to find the wisdom to guide us. Right. And, and I guess that's, I, I was going to ask you earlier, for the folks who came to you who were growing up in the faith, never felt quite this idea or sense of struggle. Why were they coming to you at the point that they did? Uh, you mean like for for the interview or what yeah. do you mean? Well, for the interview, for to speak with you, for any sort of sense of... Were they coming to you for guidance? Were they just coming to you to share their journey? What was the... I guess it's put it in the narrative terms, why now? Yeah. Well, so I, I don't know. I guess most people, like particularly that I've interviewed, have, have been there because they somebody they had something to talk about, right? And, the, and they wanted to share their story. I think there's this inherent uh, piece to being a human being that we think... We know that our story needs to be shared. And there's there's something about sharing it that gives it meaning. I don't know. You're you're way smarter on this stuff than I am. I, I will tell you what I've told people that I work with professionally. It's not that I know better, I know differently. Yeah. Well, why do you think that is? I look and I wonder why now. And I know from my own experience, this isn't just issues of faith, as in religious faith, but people who have gone through a significant portion of their life without struggle, when that time finally arrives that they do, they drown because yeah. they reach that point where the things, the knowledge they have 
has not yet become the wisdom to provide them with the means to navigate and to survive. Right. They may even recognize that they have the means, but the knowledge of how to use them comes from trying and failing and trying again. Right. And being okay with that, which is a yeah. little bit dicey on, on a faith perspective, right? Right. Particularly if you're looking at a situation where within your belief system, there is an end destination that changes depending on how well you in your right. mind adhere to that. Right. Yeah. That can be really, really hard. I think that's where authenticity is really important and it's it's tough. I mean, in a lot of evangelical churches, it's easy to show up, put on your smiley face and then go to a service and leave, right? So... I guess let's let's focus the conversation here as we as we move toward the end. How do you help these people? How do you help the people you work with through this idea of doubt as part of the journey? And because it seems to me like there's this fear that if they engage or embrace in the doubt, they will lose what they have and not be able to find it again. Right. Okay. So I tried to do that by having people on the show who have had gone through doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I recently interviewed a guy named Seth Price. He has a show called, a podcast called, Can I Say This at Church? I That's love a that great title. title. It is. And that was, he, he tells the story of how he, how he came up with that. It was just kind of a, kind of a thing, a question he asked. And he was like, I don't actually know if I can. <laughs> he was fortunate to have a great pastor who said, I'm not going to answer the questions for you, but I'll show you the right, I'll lead you through the process. Mm-hmm. We had this great conversation. I loved the conversation because he asked so many questions um, around his faith as he was tra- as he was trying to develop kind of questioning coming from the Bible belt and all these different things questioning even something down down as I would argue fundamental as the virgin birth I got a uh, review on my podcast this week somebody <laughs> who said I love the show of course the most recent episode was a little disturbing because you know the virgin birth is is true and you know, mm-hmm. we shouldn't, truth is truth and we shouldn't question that. <laughs> okay. Well, that person's not in the mm-hmm. place where, you know, that's okay to, to question. Sure. But here's the thing. Other people are. And so is it possible for you to ask the questions, the hard questions for which, you know, you might be considered a, a heretic for even asking and then still retain your faith? And I would argue just talking to Seth, this is a guy who loves Jesus. He's a guy who loves truth as much as anybody but he's not willing to settle for the heart for the easy answers. He's not willing to settle for just this is what we believe because we've always believed it. He wants to dig in and find out. And I titled that episode "A Bigger God." So uh, Seth Price and a bigger God because he really found that God was bigger than his uh, belief system had given him. He can actually be bigger than this piece of truth. Uh, like maybe it's true that other evidence or there's something else that we could think about. Now, a lot of Christians, that's going to disturb, you know, and I'm a little uncomfortable with it. I told them, like, I don't, I have to believe in the virgin birth because I haven't considered it or studied it. But, right. but my point was that he's still, I still think he's a believer. He still loves the Lord. So giving people an opportunity to hear that, I hope gives some permission to go ahead and ask the questions. I would, I would love to have you on the show again to speak with our rabbi who for many years has struggled with the idea of there being an, a God in an afterlife, which you would think for a religious leader of a community is yeah unusual, and it is. And when his son passed in a early and dramatic fashion, he struggled and grappled with that. And I won't go into too much detail of the story here because there's, there's a lot to it in his journey, but the reason I bring it up here is that he had to struggle with the idea of wanting a thing that he didn't believe in and trying to reconcile that because he, he had this desire to want to see his son again. And for that to happen, there would have to be a, time, a place and a time for that. 
but then he would have to believe in that, which would undermine everything else he felt wow. to be true. I don't know if in the years that have passed then, since that he has reached a, a conclusion to that, or even if he will. And perhaps that's part of what it means to truly to have and to deal with faith, that you don't, you don't always get to have the answers that you want, but you do sometimes find the ones that you need. It's interesting to me, wasn't the desire before and afterlife, I know it's not rational proof, but doesn't it prove in some ways that there might be more to this life? You know, I've I've traveled enough and met enough people who believe in things that would be considered woo-woo and had experiences that don't make sense within what I thought to be the world and the way it works at the time. Mm-hmm. To develop a healthy idea that the human mind is capable of many things, but knowing everything isn't one of them. <laughs> right. And I remember years ago, I boggled one of my writing professors when he told me to change a character entirely. And I looked at him without batting an eye and said, I can't, that's murder. Wow. And he said, what do you mean? They're words on a page. I said, no, they're people. It's not his fault. I don't understand him. And I guess I would say the same there, that if there is something beyond us, I can't blame that for not being capable to comprehend it entirely or at all. And we've learned so much about the world that we didn't think to be true or possible. It would seem, it seems foolish to me to, out of sheerly desire, say no. By the same token, I don't know if I shared this story with you, but we were traveling in the Hopi Mesas, and our guide told us that one day he had this woman who wanted to see signs and portents and everything. And she believed herself to be psychic and that God would speak to her. So she was always looking for the next message. So here they are. They go up to the Hopi Mesas, 7,000 feet in the air, and she's just, she's awed. It's a beautiful, raw country. The people are so different from her Midwestern childhood experience. There's so, so much of this is new and novel. She can't help but feel that something will arrive here for her that this moment has been itching, been aching to happen. And sure enough, as she gets out of the van, the wind comes and picks up her hat and rolls it along the ground, up this ladder and onto the roof of a building to collapse next to this elderly old man who's just watching the people walk by. So she, hesitantly at first, and then increasingly with anticipation, climbs the ladder up and up and up and up, gets onto the roof, reaches out for the hat, sees the old man pick it up and hand it to her, and she goes... In this moment of eagerness and anticipation, thinking that he's going to bestow some great, as a sage on the mountain would, wisdom or advice to her. And she goes, what was that? And he looks at her, and he looks at that, and he goes, the wind. (laughs) It's funny, because you can look at that story and think, well, okay, yeah, there was no greater message. But by the same token, perhaps that was the message. Right. Yeah. And there's a way, see, I would argue there's a way that the wind reveals God, right? The wind is the, the natural phenomenon, is the supernatural. I think to your experience that there's a certain humor in this whole moment. Okay, fine. I will give you what you want, but not the way you expect. Or I will give it to you in the way that you need most. That if you think you need this thing, but what perhaps you need is a bit of perspective and humility. Or just some sense that there is more to the world than you see or want there to be. And I can always say this as a storyteller, but I think the joy for me is always in... It's a piece of wisdom passed down for me that I will always pass on to others. If you are not surprising yourself you will not surprise anyone else. True enough. I, I can't, you know, to your question, I can't I can't give a definitive answer because I, I can only speak to my experiences. I know I've probably survived things I shouldn't have. I was a car accident when I was nine. The car was destroyed. The driver, her, part of her spine was shattered. I had concussion and severe damage to my knee and my arm, but I'm alive. You look at the car, it was accordioned. There should have been bodies coming out of that. You can say why. The physics say one thing. And all the, the, the paramedics who arrived there had a, had an expectation. They thought the world was going to be a certain way when they arrived there. 
but it wasn't. The driver, our sitter is alive. My brother, who's autistic, is screaming. And I'm in shock, but conscious and aware. And then suddenly they have to change their whole perception of what they're supposed to do in them to do in that time. And I guess that honestly is perhaps the best example I have I can think of of Thich Nhat Hanh saying, be mindful. Because you can go about your life and think it's supposed to be a certain way, but that doesn't mean when you arrive there, it will be. You know, we use the term like hold it with an open hand, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, it's okay to have your truth, but allow it to be challenged. Uh, I think you have to take into account experiences like that. Take into account objectivity as much as you can, or I would say the scriptures, but hold everything loosely so that you can still learn. I know this might be difficult to talk about as we end, but when your son came home that day, what did you say to him? Yeah. So we actually, we have three kids who were at that school. So okay. it was interesting because we had to wait for a long time. And then we found, we were able to eventually let into a room where we could reunite with our kids. You know, there was a lot of hugs. Um, you know, we've tried to talk a little bit about it as they want to. We've gotten together with friends. My wife's a little more in touch with them on an emotional level. So she's had more conversations than I have, but um, just ask them if they're afraid, you know, ask them if they're, you know, what they're worried about. And uh, they're a little terrified to go back to school. Sure. Which makes sense. Uh, they're going to have to face some fears for sure. But I don't know. They're, they're both more resilient than I thought and more shook up than I thought. It's, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting road. Well, I wish you and your family all the best with that. I know I've, I've not experienced that, but, and I can't even use the phrase things like that, but things of the so similar gravity. Yeah. And it takes, <laughs> I hate to say it, but it does take time. But more than that, I think it takes care. Yeah. Definitely takes a little bit of just tenderness and, and kind of listening and uh, going through it. I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what, you know, to be honest, I don't even know. Like, I don't know. It's still so new. You know, I, I wrote today, somebody was making a political point and I, I would just be honest, it kind of pissed me off. <laughs> and uh, I, I just said, you know, you know, there's families who are hurting, whether we lost anybody or not. And those people certainly have every right to be angry or whatever they're feeling. Mm -hmm. But it's the first thing we think about in the morning and the last thing we pray about at night, you know, it's, it's just something that's there. So we have to kind of, it's going to be interesting as we learn to, to deal with that. But it's been weird, man, just to be on the inside of it because I don't like, I literally don't care about the politics. You know, I know there's debates and stuff going on mm -hmm. every, as does every time this happens. And I'm kind of, I love politics. I'm kind of a political junkie. I don't care. It's not about that. It's about something so much more important. It's about people. What is it like to, if not be in that long night in the desert again, watch someone else, your, your children, go through something like that? Oh, it's heartbreaking. You know, it's it's very difficult to kind of watch them wrestle with these kind of things. You know, I mean, they, they each process it a little bit differently. We have a younger elementary kid and he processes it in one way. And then he's, he's much more, he's afraid, but he's a little, he finds it a little easier, I think, to just kind of let it go. And then our we have a fourth grader and he's, so he's a lot more thoughtful, you know, they kind of grow in that mm -hmm. those couple of years. And so he's definitely thinking about what it means that this has happened. And then, um, you know, then we have a high schooler and he's just at that age where he won't talk to us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so that at least hasn't changed. That's a whole nother thing, right? So you're like, oh, what's going on in there? I don't know. So it's frustrating and it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a while, but we'll see what happens. Eric, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. Is there anything before we finish up our conversation that you want to have the audience take action on, be mindful of? Um, no, you know what? So one time while we were talking, I looked at this quote and I know you've, you've heard it. It's, it's maybe even a little cliche, but the Paul Coelho quote, 
maybe the journey isn't so much about becoming anything. Maybe it's about unbecoming everything that isn't really you. So you can be who you're meant to be in the first place. And I take that from a Christian standpoint, for sure. God made you for something. Um, there's a wonderful verse uh, written in letter to the Ephesians that says, he had good works for you before the creation of the world. Like God knows you. There are things He wants you to do. And I think the journey is really the process of figuring out what those things are and going after them. That does. That does make sense. I, I think like you, I didn't imagine or envision myself being where I am today. But I think as I said to my, my coach, my mentor, and my advisor when she asked me about my writing and finishing the book, she said, do you think the you you were then could have finished it? And I said, no. I, I had to become the person I had to be to write it. Yeah. And being willing to be on that journey makes all the difference. So absolutely. Um, yeah, I would invite uh, invite our, our friends listening. You know, if you want to check that out, you can definitely find find me at ericnevins.com. Um, check out the podcast and I hope that it will be a, a blessing to you too. And you run summits during the year as well, right? I do. So I'm just starting something. I A couple of years ago, I... Uh, created a Facebook group for Christian podcasters because we need support like everybody and there weren't any. I was found that weird. I couldn't find any. And so I created um, or anyone that would allow me to interact with each other. So I created a group and we uh, it's called the Christian Podcasters Association. Um, we get together, we talk throughout, you know, you can ask questions. A lot of it's podcasting related, but we try to make connections with people so that we can further our goals. Good example is I have, I have some friends who one guy's an audio editor and another woman is a podcaster. And she said, Hey, I'm really behind on all my podcasting because I can't get these things edited. <laughs> said, hey, I'll do it for free. You know how that is, right? Oh, yeah. He said, Hey, I'll do it for free for a little while. So they did. And now they've got a, a, a relationship where he's, uh, she's paying him to edit his shows or her shows. And uh, those are the kind of connections I'm trying to make. So I decided, somebody said not too long ago that it'd be great to have uh, a conference. I thought, I have no idea how to do a physical conference. So we're going to do a conference. <laughs> and I've got uh, six speakers. People are talking about how to get great guests and how to use Twitter to advance your, your show, everything from how to grow your email list, all that kind of thing. I'm going to talk about how to make your guest process efficient because that's something that I think is really helpful and have helped take my show to a new level. Hopefully, we'll just encourage a bunch of people to show up and grow their show by getting better at it. So... It's called the Christian Podcast Summit, and I should have that link for you. I can send it to you. Definitely. My co-hosts are practicing, so they might be interested in that. Yeah, that'd be cool. I think we'll talk a little bit about truth in podcasting, because I think that uh, is a thing we should think about. But other than that, it's, it's going to be a lot of good podcasting tips. Those are always useful to have. Like with any craft, you learn continuously as you go on. You can't let the, what you don't know stop you. No, you, you have to... I had an interview which will be coming live soon, and one of the things he discovered in his work is that you, you have to let the stumbling and the struggling be part of what people know. Yeah. They, they have to see that the craft of making, the work of making a thing, or in your case, the work of making you, is just that. It's work. And it takes time, and it's okay. Think back <laughs> to that scene of Goodwill Hunting. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You have to almost make it a mantra. Yeah. So just to, to let it permeate through all those layers of not wanting to listen or hear or be there in the moment. Eric, again, it was a wonderful conversation today. I'm so glad we were able to talk again. Yeah, I love it. You are very gifted as a conversationalist, Jared. So I, I've enjoyed uh, this uh, wide ranging talk. It was a lot of fun. So that's all for tonight. 
If you like what you hear and you want to show your support, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash hearbeingtigers. That's with a Y for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share, or have us revise, you can write to us and my name dot my last and you me tires. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.